On Palm Sunday, we remember Jesus entering the city. We remember the crowd, the enthusiastic crowd, who is uh, waving palm branches and hailing Jesus as the king, as the rightful king who was to come. This is the same crowd, however, that within a week is calling for his crucifixion. Whatever initial enthusiasm, enthusiasm that this crowd had for Jesus, it, they somehow became disappointed, or they, it had turned into disdain, even, towards Jesus. And it's a good image for us to think about this passage of Scripture. This is the last of a series of Scriptures we've been looking at in the book of Colossians. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. And we're kind of finishing this series in the central theme of the letter. And the theme is this. Continue in Jesus. Continue in Christ. Look at verse 6. It's printed on the back of your, your bulletin here. The first Verses 6 and 7. It says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. Just as you have received Jesus, continue in him. Receiving Jesus means receiving the good news, the gospel message that the kingdom of God is at hand in Jesus, that it's about who Jesus is and what he accomplished on the cross. And by faith, receiving that, that is the foundation that we build our life upon. The problem is... We, as just as the crowd on Palm Sunday was quick to reject Jesus, we are quick to look to other foundations in our lives to, on which to build our spirituality, in which to, to build our faith other than Jesus. And we live in a world that has a lot of spiritual ideas. We as Christians live in a world where there are a lot of different faith systems and beliefs. You might be the only Christian in your family. You might be the only Christian in your neighborhood or in your place of work. And we, we go about our every day and we hear different ideas. We hear different philosophies and different ideas about spirituality. And they can seem very appealing. Even Christian ideas. There's so many Christian uh, books and websites and movies and blogs and podcasts and all these different ideas that sound very good and very Christian, but if it's building on a foundation other than the sufficiency of Jesus, then it's a false idea. It's an idea we need to avoid because we're building on the foundation of Jesus, not some other foundation. And that's the main point here. Or I'll put it like this. Sometimes it's not about what we add in to our lives, but sometimes it's about stripping everything else away so that all that's left is Jesus and seeing how supreme and how sufficient is our Lord Jesus. And here in this scripture, the Apostle Paul is teaching, very importantly, four things to avoid, four false teachings, four ideas that people might fall for to replace the supremacy of Jesus or add on to Jesus. Now, we're not living in first century Colossae. You know, we, live in the, we live in the Merrimack Valley. Our problems are not their problems. And I'm not saying that the things that they struggled with are the same ideas that we struggle with. But the reality of this, the, the temptation to add things to our faith, that, to feel that our spirituality is deficient and we need to add something other than Jesus or a different foundation, that's the danger for us as it was for them. 
You have everything you need in Jesus. Let's look at these four warnings, uh, these four things that might get in the way of that. And as we do, let's pray. Lord, you're good. In, in your goodness, you have called us to this place. I don't believe anybody is in this room by accident. And I believe you have something for us, Lord. And I pray that you would just give us hearts of faith to be open to what you have for us, that we might respond to you in faith and obedience. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is here and alive and active, Lord. May we lean into that. Give us the grace to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, four warnings. The first is against deceptive philosophy. They're all going to begin with the letter P, or they're all going to have the letter P in them. That's just a defect of a preacher. Deceptive philosophy. Verse 8. And again, I'm following along the back of your bulletin here. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Human tradition you got to ask, how much of our faith really resembles what Jesus taught about following him? And how much of it is just human tradition? How much of our prayer resembles how Jesus taught his disciples to pray? And how much of it is just our tradition? And the temptation here is to replace Jesus with just tradition, just following the right formula. Follow the right spiritual formula and things will go well for you. That's a, that's a deceptive philosophy. It's also rooted in the elemental spiritual forces of, the, of this world. That's a tricky word. I'm actually not even sure what that means, if it's the local folk religion or the kind of their pagan deities around them. But these, the, the point is, there, there is no spirituality that you need beyond faith in Jesus Christ. Don't depend on tradition. Don't depend on other spiritualities. Because of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished, you don't need anything else. And here comes a description. The Apostle Paul, a Holy Spirit-filled messenger of God, describes who God is and what he's done in such profound language. Let's just look at it. In verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. This is all of who God is is in Jesus. Jesus is fully God. Right there for our eyes to, to see, for, for people to be able to touch and experience. All of who God is lives in Jesus, and now we have been brought into that fullness. Verse 10, in, in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He's the head of every power and authority. He's the head. The God of the universe has taken on human flesh in a way that we can be brought into a relationship, a connection, a fellowship with the God of the universe. That's such a profound... And he's the power over any other forces that would even be thought to exist. He is the head of all things. How is this possible? We see in verse 11. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. There's two images there. One, They're both the images of the signs of the Old Testament covenant, which was circumcision, and the sign of the New Testament covenant, which is baptism. And here, it's, it's not the outward act 
of these things, you know, baptizing a child or circumcising a child. It's about, what, it's about the spiritual reality that they represent. It's about a cutting off of all of our sinfulness and, and all of our brokenness and all the ways we fall short. It's about uh, being covered in, in, in water, the, the death of our sinful nature. That, that's what God has done for us. So he's taken our sinfulness and he's cut it away. He's, it, it's been put to death. And now it's, there's also new life. Look at verse 12. In which you were also raised, so talking about the baptism, also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him, who raised Jesus from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all of our sins. So that, that stuff is all put away. We've been raised to a whole new life. And it's all possible through the cross. Look at verse 14. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Again, there's a lot of imagery here. But the image is that there was, there's a legal debt there's a list, and it's a list of your sins, and, and God has it. And the consequences of our sin is, is death, phys physical, spiritual death, separation from God. That's what sin does, and that's a problem for all of us because there's a list, and every, every sinful thing you've done, every, sin, every sinful thing you've thought, every sinful thing, that, every sinful attitude of your heart, there, there's a list and this list creates a debt, and this debt you cannot pay. You can start to try to make a list of your good deeds over here, to try to cancel out this list of your sin, but God knows you too well, and that list will never be long enough to pay. That's the image here. But something gets nailed to the cross. What got nailed to the cross of Jesus? Jesus got nailed to the cross. Something else was nailed to the cross with him. It was a sign. It was the charges against him. The charges against Jesus that Pilate had written, King of the Jews, that the accusation against Jesus was he claimed to be one with God. He claimed to be the king of God's people. And, and it was a charge of blasphemy, king of the Jews. Now, Jesus' opponents, they were very careful. They said, actually, Pilate, that sign should say, this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. The charge against Jesus nailed to the cross with him. Now the image here, what Paul is saying, there's something else that was nailed to that cross. There were more charges against Jesus nailed to that cross. It was your list. It was my list. The list of my sins, this debt I could not pay, gets nailed to the cross with Jesus, and it dies with him. It gets defeated with him. He pays it for us. It, it takes, it's nailed to the cross, verse 14 says. And then in verse 15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That this cross that was supposed to kill the Lord, he doesn't keep him in the grave. He rises to new life. That all that is destroyed and defeated, and it dies with him in the grave. That is the good news of Jesus, and that is all you need. There is no other spirituality. There is no other path. There is nothing else in all of creation that you need than to put your faith in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. Everything else is a hollow or deceptive philosophy. 
as is written here. Anything that you believe about God that is not true is hollow and deceptive philosophy. There's plenty. I, there's things about God that are not true that I've believed. That perhaps you believe. Things like, well, God will bless me if I'm good. And the reason I'm not experiencing God's blessing is because I just haven't been good enough. And if I try harder, I will receive more of God's blessing. That's not how it works, folks. That list, that your good list is not going to be long enough to earn the blessing. Jesus had to take the charge against you and nail it to the cross and die with it. And then every spiritual blessing is yours in Jesus. Every blessing comes from our Heavenly Father. We don't earn these things. We put our faith in Him and trust Him. Any thought about God that God has somehow shortchanged us or God has not done enough for us, we come back to this. We don't add something else in to try to get more of God's blessing. We come back to what he's done and what he has accomplished. We put our faith in that. No, hollow, no deceptive philosophies. Second warning is against irrelevant practices. We see this in verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. The, the problem here in the church that he's warning against was this legalism, that there were those who said, look, you have your faith in Jesus, but you need to add into your faith in Jesus to get to the next level. You need to observe all these uh, celebrations and religious festivals and Sabbath days and practices in, in a very formulaic and legalistic way. And if you just follow these rules right, you're going to experience more. It's going to take you to the next level. They're, they're trying to round out people's spiritual experience. The problem is you can't unlock the spiritual world through these practices. There's not some super spirituality out there that I just... If I could just follow the right formula, I could get to it. It's not that these things are bad, but they, they're good in the sense that they point us to Christ, but we can't just follow them in a legalistic way. I had a friend once, and it's, it's still a friend, but gave me a really hard time about the Sabbath. And he said, he said, does your church, do you believe in the Ten Commandments? And I said, yes, we believe in the Ten Commandments. He said, do you believe that you should follow the Ten Commandments? I said, yeah, absolutely. I think we should follow the Ten Commandments. He said, do you think your church can just change the Bible? No. He said, then why do you, why do, you do Sabbath on Sunday? Because it's supposed to be Saturday. God rested on the seventh day, which would be the Saturday. And, you know, and the Jewish people, they observed a very strict Sabbath. But you Christians just changed it. And your church changed it. I said, well, my church didn't change it. I said, but yeah, Christians putting their faith in Jesus Christ and understanding his resurrection from the dead designated Sunday, the day of the resurrection, as, as, as the day of the week to rest and to focus on God and to celebrate and to gather. And, and yeah, it transferred from Saturday to Sunday. I said, no big deal. He said, well, when you get to heaven and you look God in the face, he's going he's gonna to ask you why you changed his Bible. And I tried to explain. I said, well, Jesus, you know, Jesus was criticized for not honoring the Sabbath quite right and for healing on the Sabbath. And he explained, you know, the Sabbath is meant for us, not us for the Sabbath. And, they, you know, talk about Jesus. And then I came across this passage. 
Colossians 2, 16. And I say, could you look at this with me? It says, do not anybody judge you uh, regard to Sabbath. I said, stop judging me. <laughs> and he chuckled. And the point is this. If, if, if we could achieve a super spirituality by just being more strict in how we do religious practices or doing more of them, doing more gatherings and, and just doing it the right way, then we would. The problem is we can't. Religious practices, uh, taking Sabbath, fasting, praying, all Jesus, assumed, Jesus taught these things. Jesus affirmed these things. They are good things to the extent they point us to Jesus. The reality is found in Jesus, but the thing itself is, is just a shadow. And if we just spend all of our time obsessing about doing the right spiritual practices at the right time, on the right day, in the right place, with the right songs, in the right clothes, in the right everything, it really takes our focus off what God is doing when we're not gathering to do spiritual practices. And how does the Apostle Paul teach these people how to live out their faith? He teaches them to live it out in their everyday. So we're in chapter 2 here, but if you flip to chapter 3, what is... What does the Apostle Paul teach? He said, you're going to live out your faith as a husband to a wife and a wife to a husband. You're going to live out your faith as a parent, if you're a parent. You're going to live out your faith as a boss or as a worker. Whatever life in your everyday God has called you to, that's where you can know and experience the power of God in your everyday. Not just at the designated festivals and gatherings. Not that those things are bad. Those things are great. Just Keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't try to earn something by getting it just right. Because at the end of the day, we're going to get it wrong. At least on occasion, if you're like me. Irrelevant practices. Third thing. The third warning is against empty promises. We see this in verses 18 and 19. Reading again. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. One of the issues here was worship of angels. Now, I believe in angels. I believe that God has angels. I believe angels benefit humanity. I don't always see it or understand it, but I know that that's true. But we do not worship angels. God's word is clear that we worship God alone. And we don't command angels. Angels are at God's command. They do God's bidding. They don't do our bidding. They don't follow our commands. So, and there's actually this resurgent a resurgence today in our world of people who want to worship or venerate or pray to angels. And we're not to do that. We have Jesus. We can pray to Jesus. We don't need to pray to angels. I thought this was, I thought this was so irrelevant. I, last week, so last weekend I was so sick. I had this cold or something. And I, I was... In, at North Andover, and I was preaching about worship of angels, and I thought this was the most irrelevant thing. And immediately after the service, two people came up to me and said, I, I've been dealing with this. I know people who are, you know, trying to help me 
help them pray to angels and this uh, this pub Christian publication I had had all this like how to connect with angels stuff in it and I was just shocked like really people actually people are really into that it, I, so it wasn't a struggle for me but apparently there's this resurgent of angel worship we, we just don't do that but what happens is and we see this described here in verse look at the end of verse 18 it says such a person goes into great detail about what they've seen and they're puffed up with these idle notions of their unspiritual mind. People have spiritual experiences, profound spiritual experiences. And the temptation is for that person to then say, look, I've had this profound spiritual experience. I did these things. I did these spiritual practices. And God gave me this amazing experience. And if you did what I did, and you did the same things I did, you might also have the same spiritual experience. And the temptation is we get jealous of other people's spirituality. Well, that person had a profound thing. I want to be more like them. Oh, this person seems to be so gifted by the Holy Spirit. I want to be more like that person. The problem is we need to not be more like our super spiritual friends. We need to be more like Jesus. Our spiritual friends can help us along that road. And we can learn things from one another. Absolutely, that's God's design. But it's not about imitating somebody's experience. It's, it's about knowing the Lord yourself. We often just give great credence to people who claim to have seen heaven or seen an angel. Jesus said, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. The only one whose spiritual experience we need to put our credence and weight into is Jesus himself. He's the one who can tell us what heaven is like. And again, I'm not denying that people have profound experiences, but we can't, I get, the image here is that sometimes those experiences get decapitated. They've been cut off from the head. They've been cut off from Jesus. So maybe Jesus gives a beautiful experience to somebody, but then that experience becomes about the person, and Jesus is cut off from that. But we need to stay connected to Jesus, the head, and we need to stay connected to one another, his body, as is described here. We are called to a mutual interdependence. That's why we, that's why we really encourage life in small groups, gather in small groups throughout the week so we can learn from one another. That's why we talk about things like church membership. Let's be committed to one another, to walk together, to help each other grow as we point each other to Jesus, not point each other to ourselves. Because just, that's just an empty promise. All right, last thing. Fourthly, the fourth warning is against false purity. We see this in verse 20. It says, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why as though you still belong to the why as though you still belong to the world do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Skipping down to verse 23. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Again, similar to the other one, but it's, it's about trying to gain some advanced spirituality through strict purity rules. Now, the man who wrote this letter, his name was Paul, he actually taught other churches that there were reasons why you might avoid certain foods that were prepared in certain ways for spiritual reasons. But it was always about love for your fellow person and your love for the Lord. It wasn't just about 
following a rule just to be strict, just to achieve something. And it looks like wisdom. It looks like, wow, look at that person who is so strict with their life and their rules and their boundaries. It looks like spirituality, but does it actually change anything? Does it actually have value to change your heart? And that's the important thing. For us today, I, perhaps this might be a time when you might take on a more strict way of life. In the season of Lent, many times Christians will give things up. Christians might give up alcohol or give up chocolate or give up Facebook or give something up for the season of Lent. And you're almost there. It's Palm Sunday. You only have a week to go. And you get to the end of it and say, I didn't open my Facebook one time during Lent. Or I didn't eat one piece of chocolate. And people look at you and say, wow, you're really self-disciplined. You're really committed. You're really spiritual. Look at what you did. The question, though, is did it actually change your heart? Now, I've done it, too. I, I find it a helpful practice to give something up for Lent. And I believe that God has met me in a special way in that. Not because I've given it up or because I'm strong, but because he's, he's using it to show himself to me, to change my heart. But my uh, strict behavior isn't changing my heart. It's his spirit. It, it's, it, to the extent it points to him, in his goodness, to the extent that it points to me and my strength, not only is it not helpful, but it's destructive. It's a, just a false purity. God's the one who does the work. And that's our, four, that's our four warnings. I don't know if any of that is helpful for you today. Again, the things they dealt with in Colossae are going to be different things, different philosophies and ideas that you're going to struggle with. But what is the same for us and for them is the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Continue in Christ. Don't add on to Jesus. There isn't some special spirituality out there that you need to unlock. It's, he's giving you his spirit to mold you and to shape you and to change you that you might know him and love him and serve him excellently. He has given it all. Sometimes it's not about the things that we add in to our life, but the things that we strip away so that all that's left is Jesus. We see how truly sufficient, supreme he is. Continue in Christ. Amen.